and it, and I think that is a moral obligation in the sense that who's funding this? It's it's the taxpayer who's con continuing to suffer from mental illness and other illnesses of the brain. Are are we doing the best we can to to understand the brain and to bring solutions to these problems, or are we you know playing around? Welcome back to Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Calmers, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. So before we get into this week's guest, I just want to tell you a little bit about my new podcast called Notes from the Field. It's a show about travel. On Cognitive Revolution, I explore the backstories of the people who come up with ideas. So of, of writers, academics, thinkers, scientists. But there's another kind of figure that I've always admired. That is the traveler. This is the person who goes to a faraway place, has a look around, and tries to make sense of what they saw for the rest of us back at home. Of course, the intersection between those two kinds of figures is the anthropologist. And in my own way, that's the kind of thing that I try to capture in notes from the field. This week's episode is actually the final episode in season one. It is my episode on Christmas in Myanmar, part two. You can find notes from the field on whichever platform you may currently be listening through. My guest this week is Yael Niv. She is a professor at Princeton, at both the Princeton Neuroscience Institute as well as the Department of Psychology. She is also a co-director of the new Rutgers Princeton Center for Computational Neuropsychiatry. Yael has been on my radar for many years now. Uh, not only is she a big deal in computational neuroscience generally, but she was actually the PhD advisor of Sam Gershman, who I worked for uh, for two years as his lab manager. And so Yael's work was always just sort of pertinent background knowledge for whatever was going on in Sam's lab. So I've always been interested to talk to her, but never had an occasion to do so. And what sparked my interest recently was that I noticed there were a couple papers being shared and discussed in several different uh, sort of spheres that I'm a part of. And uh, th these were papers by Yal, and they just seemed like really excellent, timely work that was speaking to a lot of people. So I felt like this would be a good opportunity to dig into her story for the show and hear a little bit more about how that informed her recent thinking on these big topics. So the main paper that caught my interest is called The Primacy of Behavioral Research for Understanding the Brain. And essentially what Yael argues in this paper is that behavioral experiments are often way more useful for understanding how the brain works than neural experiments are. And yet, neural experiments, such as fMRI, are way more expensive. So even if what we want to do is understand the brain, the field, you know, psychology, neuroscience, etc., needs to focus way more on behavioral experiments that, rather than investing further resources and collecting a bunch of neural data. And this is something that I'm extremely sympathetic to, and I would even suggest that I'm doing my own part to further the cause by failing to do any fMRI work of my own during my PhD. So uh, her and I talk a lot about the background, the genesis of this uh, paper, as well as you know, a little bit further elaboration on the structural issues surrounding it and how science is funded. And uh, I think, I guess one thing that I think is worth pointing out is that um, 
So psychology as a field has always had a certain chip on its shoulder, sort of feeling like it needs to prove that it's really a science. And so in psychology departments and, and even in individual careers, there's a lot of pressure to do things that seem increasingly sciency, increasingly impressive in their empirical ambition. And in many ways, I think this is the sort of counterforce that makes us continue to collect more and more neural data of dubious utility, right? Because it's an empirical investigation that garners prestige. So in some uh, scientific sense, I think what we need as psychologists is to develop a bit more confidence and to do what needs to be done without working uh, without worrying whether or not it's going to appear sciency. At any rate, uh, Yao makes some fantastic points in the paper, uh, which you'll hear us discuss later on in the conversation. Another aspect of Yael that I've admired for a long time is her activism. Unfortunately, it's not something we get into much in this interview, uh, though perhaps we would have had there been more time, but it's very cool to see her involvement in making the world a tangibly better place in addition to her career as a scientist. So it was a lot of fun to talk to her and hear more about her story. So without any further ado, here is Yael Niv. So I guess the first thing that I usually like to ask people is about where they grew up. Um, so I'm wondering, uh, yeah, what, 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 did that, what did that look like for you? So I grew up in Israel. That's also the origin of my name. It's an Israeli name. Um, all but four years of my childhood, which were kind of important. So ages uh, like second to fifth grade, I lived in, in the U.S., in fact, in New Jersey. Um, so I kind of have that, that um I guess the double bringing up because I continued to read books in English when we came back, when we went back to Israel. And um, so I, I was really as a teenager kind of immersed in like, what is the college experience like in the U.S.? Having read books about that, it's very different from Israel. So it was kind of a shock for me when I actually went to college in Israel. Right. And then so you did you did your undergraduate in Tel Aviv as well as your master's, right? Mm hmm. Yes, it's I actually um, so I went to a program that you don't get a BA. It's kind of a they call it direct to master's, but I call it BA bypass because it's not any more direct. It's just, you know, you don't get a BA on the way. So I have a master's from Tel Aviv University and, and a PhD from the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Yeah, so I guess um, one thing that I noticed in, in looking at your CV is that you appeared to have studied computational neuroscience from the get-go and are now one of the world's preeminent computational neuroscientists. So uh, a, a hypothesis that it seems that you had early on and ended up being at least somewhat correct in terms of what you were interested in and, and, and had a natural proclivity for. So what, what was there a particular moment where you're like, wow, the brain is cool. I got to know how it works. What, what did that sort of what did that look like for you? Uh, totally, there was. Uh, so I um, so kind of going back to the fact that I, I thought college in Israel would be like college in the U.S. Here you you. Um, go to college and you can kind of explore for a couple of years if you're going to a liberal arts college and then decide what you major in. In Israel, that's not the case. You have to say when you're applying exactly what you're going to study. Um, there are just a bunch of majors that you have to choose from and you have no choice of classes after that or very, very little choice. And I was just shocked to see that because I did not know what I want to do when I grow up and I didn't know what I want to study. and. 
I thought I would study physics because my dad is a physicist. Um, and I thought that until the, I, well, my dad asked me, what do you think you're going to study? And I said, well, I thought I was going to study physics. And he said, are you actually interested in that? And it was kind of eye-opening. I'd never really thought that, you know, you grow up and, you know, your parents are doing something and you just assume that that's the way to do life. And I thought, no, actually I'm not interested in physics. I'd, I'd done like the equivalent of AP physics in high school. I was good at it, but it wasn't that interesting for me. So then I was kind of at a crossroads of what do I want to do? And I have to decide and I have no idea. So I actually didn't go to university that year. I um, instead um, took what's called a gap year. I mean, here it's has a special name in Israel. It's super common. I went to guide hikes in the Society for Preservation of Nature in Israel. And I also worked uh, as a software programmer that year. And um, and I read a, uh, I, and you know, I, I read a book called uh, Gittel Escherbach uh, by Douglas Hofstadter. Uh, and that, that really opened my mind. I, I was like, oh my God, I know what I'm interested in. I'm really interested in the brain. I'd never really thought of the brain or cognition before that. And that book really opened my mind to that, to the fact that the brain is really interesting and that math is a way to think about anything in the world, but basically about the brain. Um, and it's not only me, actually, I've asked a bunch of people in kind of my um, generation of computational neuroscientists. And I don't know, I haven't done like uh, actual research on this, but I bet like half the people in computational neuroscience in my, uh, my who are my age, you ask them how they got to this and it's that book. I think that book created a field. Um, or, you know, a time in that field. Um, so, so I was really interested, especially in understanding memory. Um, and at first I went and took on my, my first semester, I took a bunch of classes. So I managed to enroll in a program that lets me basically do what college looks like here. It was called the interdisciplinary program. So you got to, it's like an independent major. You get to like sample whatever you want, do whatever you want. Um, as long as you can then convince a department to enroll you in their master's program with like the transcript that you have. So I started by taking classes in psychology and especially I remember, you know, I really wanted to understand memory because I have terrible memory. So I wanted to know, you know, all research is me search. I wanted to know whether I can improve my own memory. Um, and I took a course called, called Human Memory. It was a year long course and a few other courses. And um, very early in that first semester, I realized that psychology has a lot of the interesting questions, but really not the methods that I would like to use. It, it just didn't feel precise enough. Um, there were other problems with the psychology major at Tel Aviv University. It's like pre-med in the US and that everybody there, a, a lot of people there want to go to clinical psychology uh, program and they need really high grades. So the whole department is obsessed with grades, which is I, I teach today, I teach in a method called teachers throwing out grades. I hate grades. I find them really counterproductive to learning. So I just left the psychology department and went to, um, to instead study everything from biology and neuroscience, computer science, uh, statistics, 
Markov processes, uh, evolution, genetics, like uh, the whole mix of things. Um, and then returned basically to do my master's in the psychology department, because I felt like after I had the tools, the real, the questions of interest to me were still in psychology. And so that's where kind of, it was computational neuroscience from the start, but really it was computational psychology from the start, um, less than computational neuroscience. So I, I, I never really, personally, my interests have never been on the, on, you know, how do neurons work, but like, what does the brain do? to create behavior, which is really a psychology question. Right. Yeah, and I'm sure we'll get to that, the, the sort of intimate connection between those a little later on once we talk about some of your work. Uh, but I guess I'm interested, before we, before we dive into that, so when did you feel like you started to get traction on research? Um, would that have been, you know, what, 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 yeah, I guess, when did you start to feel like that was happening? Or maybe, That's, you know, you're hoping yeah. for it sometime in the near future. I don't know, whatever, <laughs> uh, you know, what, yeah, tell me, tell me about what is, what is that? Yeah, I'm laughing because I remember thinking, especially after reading Goodall Escherbach and, and enrolling in university, I thought, okay, I'll, you know, I'll study for a few years. I'll understand kind of like everything that we already know about the brain. And then I can like continue from there to like, what are the open questions? I don't know why I had that thought because I wasn't thinking of being a researcher, but like that, I remember having that thought. And then I remember in my first semester realizing, oh no, we know nothing about the brain. It's like, there's no, I will learn for three, four, five, six years, everything that we know about the brain. It's like basic fundamentals. So I was taking this um, really intensive neuroscience course in the medical school. So medical school had a can't remember if it was like 10 hours a week. It was like a core neuroscience course that went through anatomy first and then uh, systems and then function or something like that it was divided into three. And it was just like a bunch of facts with no organization to them in the sense of like, we know how the brain works. No, we don't know. We know some things. Um, so, um, so I think sometimes you think of like getting a grasp on research is I want to know kind of like, I want the building blocks. I want to study all the building blocks and then build on that. And, and I feel that in computational neuroscience, and especially at the time, because we have made some progress since, but the building blocks were just not existent. Um, there were very, very few. Um, so, so you kind of had no choice but to think about it in a re from a research perspective rather than a reading textbook perspective. So I went to a lot of seminars. One of the um, advantages of being of taking courses in lots of departments is I would take the elevator in many departments, in many buildings, and see the advertisements for their seminars. So I started going to a bunch of colloquia and seminars, and um, I think in my maybe maybe it was already in my first year or second year, I went to a seminar about um, artificial neural networks and kind of ev evolving artificial neural networks that would do smart things. This was a graduate student, Tuvik Becker, Becker, Tuvia Becker, who was giving that talk, he, we're still friends. Um, and I was just blown away. I was like, that's what I wanna do. That's amazing, the neural network stuff just really amazed me. So I went to this guy's advisor Eitan Rupin, and I said, I'm studying this um, 
interdisciplinary program. I want to do what you guys do for my master's. Um, what classes should I take? And he just he gave me a long list of classes. And I think I returned a couple of years later and said, I took all those classes. Now will you accept me to your lab? And he had no choice uh, <laughs> because I really <laughs> went down that list to the letter. Um, so I guess that's like, that's how I started doing my master's research. And, and so, it, yeah. I think maybe part of why I hate grades so much is because they evaluate um, knowledge, but not thinking in many cases. And, and my interest, my academic interests were always very, like, I just wanna think about new things. That's why I loved going to seminars. I went to conferences really early on. There was a conference at Tel Aviv University and I snuck in somehow. It was about um, memory in the brain and like um, Jay McClelland and, and um, Rummelhart was, I, I can't remember exactly because as I said, I have terrible memory, but like big names were there. And I was like, oh my God, I get to listen to these people. So I was really drawn into the research aspects of academia early on from, from conferences and seminars. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, and I can imagine that there's, you know, a way of sort of contextualizing some of what you're saying in terms of maybe exploration and exploitation in terms of if you had gone down a more, you know, sort of traditional grade based, here's what you have to know in terms of a sort of linear program, uh, then you wouldn't have been able to piece together lots of different perspectives from that more, you know, sort of exploratory mode that you, that you were engaged in. Um, and I should say also my program really um, sent us down that route. So both year, so in year one and year two of our program, we had a, a course that was mandatory. It was the only course that was mandatory, which was a research course, an independent research. We had small groups and an advisor, and we each researched whatever we wanted to. But this was like year one and year two in university. So in Israel, a BA is a three-year program, not a four-year program. But here I'm thinking like in Princeton University where I'm at now, we have a junior, we have junior independent work and senior independent work. So we assume that, you know, by that time students can and should, and every student has to do some independent research work. But I never thought about the fact that in my program at Tel Aviv University, they were like day one, you're a freshman, go do some research. Like <laughs> that, that was part of the academic track. And, and I, you know, I, I, yeah, I don't have the control, you know, control condition to know if I would have gone down the same route otherwise, but I should probably give them a lot of credit for that because they really encourage us from the start to think of a research question and go do something about it. Um, and so my, I, like my first research project was about what is the, what is the Western explanation for the fact that uh, Chinese medicine works, acupuncture? What is the Western basis for acupuncture? Like, you know, totally unrelated to what I'm doing now, but I went and read literature and stuff and thought about that. And it, it was just like, you know, open your mind kind of thing. So I think that that might've had a big influence. Yeah, that's really interesting. So then, uh, so that was at Tel Aviv through masters and then you did your PhD at Hebrew University. Mm -hmm. uh, where you also worked with Peter Diane at Gatsby in, in England, right? Mm -hmm. When did you start to work with Peter Diane? And, did, and, and is, it, would it, is it accurate to say that's sort of when 
you know, like that, that, that was a, a, was that a crucial point in, in developing the track that you have developed in your program of research till now? Um, yes and no. <laughs> so, so my undergrad and master's I did while also working, um, at working as a software engineer. Uh, and a team leader uh, eventually because I was promoted. And so I was not set on a research track at all. That's why I, I was thinking, wow, I had that thought of like, you know, first to learn everything and then blah, blah, blah. That's kind of a strange thought because I, I did not think I would be an academic. Um, both my parents have PhDs, but they're not in academia. Like for me, this was, you know, you study these things because it's interesting to study, but that's not a career path. That's because I like because I'm interested. Um, I mean, I've since studied other things that I'm interested in that are not my career path. Um, so, like, I studied shiatsu and I and I studied CBT last year. So, or two years ago by now. Um, so, so it was all part time, part time studying, part time working, and then. But I really enjoyed my masters a lot, and a lot of the people in my lab were PhD students from this program at the Hebrew University, even though they were working at Tel Aviv University, they were from this other program. So like my role models, like it just seemed like what everybody does is a PhD in this other program, which was is called the interdisciplinary, it was then called the Interdisciplinary Center for Neural Computation. So it was like the only place, it was one of three programs of neural computation, PhDs in neural computation in the world. There was one in Zurich, one in Caltech and one in Israel. Uh, at the Hebrew University. So, and, you know, and half my lab was from there. So it just seemed like the right thing to do. Um, uh, but then there was, okay, a PhD is a full-time job. Um, my job was also getting more and more demanding. You needed to be a full-time job because I was up for another promotion. And so I decided that I'll just go do the PhD thing first and then go back to my other job. Um, they said they'd you know, they'd wait for me. Um, not like literally keep the position open, but wait for me uh, in some sense, uh, theoretical sense. And I really thought I would just go do a PhD and be done with that. Um, and then I saw an ad by Peter, Diane, and Wolfram Schultz for, so I, I went to the Hebrew University. I said, you know, I want to enroll in your program. That program is usually for people who don't have a master's degree. So I would have to, it would be kind of repeating some of the stuff um, that I already did, but but in a more organized way. And I, but I was a little bit more advanced than students who usually um, enroll in that program because they're usually just post back, so they don't necessarily know exactly what they want to research. I really had an idea of what I want to study. So that's why I'm saying yes and no about the Peter Diane question because I was, I was already studying reinforcement learning. My master's thesis was based on a paper by Peter Diane, by Reed Montague, Peter Diane, and and Terry Sanofsky, their their Nature paper about uh, 1994 about. Um, uh, octopamine and bees uh, and reinforcement learning. So it was, I was evolving networks that do reinforcement learning. That was my master's. I was totally already doing the same stuff that I do today um, in some sense, except I don't do neural networks anymore or evolution. Um, but it was reinforcement learning from the start. And I went to talk to a bunch of advisors, potential advisors at the Hebrew University about advising me on a reinforcement learning thesis 
and I couldn't find an advisor there. Um, as with many other places, but definitely then, um, even though it was a computational program, computation and kind of this cognition level was uh, was very under or behavioral level was very underrepresented. Like you could do computation of like neural networks, um, and you could do a lot of experimental stuff. Uh, so the person that was closest to my area, Hagai Bergman. Uh, was studying basically reinforcement learning in uh, non-human primates, but he did not want kind of theoreticians uh, in his, like pure theoreticians in his lab. And I, I remember having a conversation with him and saying, you know, this is what I want to study. And I had a specific idea that I've never studied, by the way, it's still, still an open question that a student could work on. Uh, I had this idea and I told him my idea and he said, you know, I, it's a great idea but I really want people who would do experiments on non-human primates. And I said, well, I can't think of an experiment that would study that question. Like I, that's not the, I can't think of how I would study that in the brains of non-human primates right now. And he said, I agree with you. So it's just like, you know, you agree that's an interesting question. You agree that I can't study it in, in monkeys. So I guess I just can't work in your lab because I want to work on that. So, so it went like that with several advisors and I couldn't find anybody. And I still started the program kind of not knowing what would happen. And then I saw this ad by Peter and, and uh, it was Wolfram Schultz. Both of them together were looking for um, a graduate student um, to study basically what I wanted to study. So I applied, even though it wasn't like anywhere near a community distance from my university, thinking I'll have to convince my program to let me do this because I actually don't have an advisor in my program. Like I already know that I'm kind of stuck. Um, so yeah, so that's how that happened to be. And, but it was definitely formative in kind of moving me to the research track as a career because um, most people at Gatsby, I think, were thinking of research as their career. It just became like, that's the norm around you. It's not necessarily the norm in Israel um, for people doing a PhD, but it was definitely, it felt like the norm at Gatsby. Yeah. And that, did you feel like, was there, it sounds like there wasn't, so it turns out that your uh, choice to, to work with them at that time was actually a really good decision in terms of where to place a bet on what's going to be really interesting and influential, you know, however long down the road. Was there any sort of calculus like that in your mind? Or were you literally just like, this is what we need to figure out. And maybe by virtue of looking for, for that question, you ended up finding uh, what was really going to open up into this really um, important path in computational neuroscience. Yeah, no, no calculation at all. Nothing strategic. It was really like, this is what I'm interested in. I had read a lot of literature on reinforcement learning. I'd read Sutton and Barto like three times, uh, the textbook each time, like learning new things from it. And I was still really interested in it. So, and I didn't even realize, I think at the time that Peter Dan was, really the leader in reinforcement learning in the brain. I mean, he, I knew of him from papers. Um, 
I'd been reading a lot about the basal ganglia. So I knew a lot of names who studied the basal ganglia, but not who studied the computational side of it. Um, I definitely did not know what a wonderful mentor he is, and he is. So I totally lucked out because I could have, you know, I, I, I didn't do a lot of background research on, on where to go for my PhD. Um, also, there were all kinds of other life constraints that happened at the time. So I was actually supposed to go study in Switzerland. I had a PhD track probably kind of laid out. Um, I don't know if my program knew it yet, but I knew it. Um, I had a partner who was Swiss um, and I was going to go live in Zurich with him and he passed away um, unexpectedly. Like and it, it was a huge tragedy in my life, it still is. And, um, and he loved London. It was his favorite city in the world. He had lived there before. And the first time I saw Peter Diane's ad, I had, it was before he passed away. I sent it to him jokingly was like, yeah, oh, should we go to London? And he's like, I'm packing my bags. And I was like, no, no, don't worry. I'm coming to Zurich. Um, and then what happened happened and, and, and he died. And, um, and I was, I almost died myself, basically. I was, I, it was just really horrible. And, um, and then that ad came out again, six months later. So they didn't fill the position the first time around. It came out so like out of the, out of the past because it even had that past deadline. Like they by mistake didn't update the deadline of when to apply. And I just looked at it and it was like, this is meant to be like, I need to apply to this because Yarg would have wanted to go there. And like, it was like all these things, it was not calculated about science. It was about where I was in life at that point. Um, hey, it worked out. That's amazing. And then, um, so from there, you finished your, your PhD there and then went to, from straight to Princeton. So I went to do a postdoc in Princeton. Right. Yeah, I was I was a postdoc here. So I was looking for a postdoc um, after my. So so that's where like it became a career path because everybody was like the next thing that they did was look for a postdoc. Nobody was like going back to their computer science to their like software programming jobs uh, where I was, uh, especially because people in, in England, they they don't often have another job on this side. It's very different from the setup in Israel. And also by then I had a boyfriend who was um, looking for faculty, who was a postdoc at, Gats at the Gatsby Computational Neuroscience Unit, also worked with Peter Dan, and he was looking for faculty positions. So it seemed like, okay, we go, I, I look for a postdoc, he looks for faculty positions. That's, that's the way it goes. Um, so, um, so he's Nathaniel Daw my husband. And uh, he got a job at NYU and I got a postdoc at Princeton. Um, and um, yeah, so that's, that's how I got to Princeton. And, and a few months in, like really a few, like a couple of months in, I thought, I remember saying to Nathaniel, oh no, I should not have taken this postdoc here 
because we don't tend to like we we almost never hire our postdocs as faculty and i thought i really love the department at princeton i would really want to be faculty there and also geographically it's within the range of nyu because i was commuting we lived in new york i'd like i really should have i should have done a postdoc at, at NYU. I had an option there too. I should have done a postdoc at NYU so I could apply for a job later at Princeton. Um, but super luckily, a job opened right then at Princeton, outside the regular season for jobs. It was some other, like a, a lot of coincidences happen, I think, to everybody, but definitely in my path. So it's a strange coincidence. A job opened like in March. I had started in January and a job opened in March and I remember my advisor, Jonathan Cohen, I was in Jonathan Cohen's lab. Um, I came to lab meeting and he said, oh, yeah, I'd like to talk to you after lab meeting. And, um, and I thought, shoot, he's gonna tell me off for always being late and it's so disruptive because <laughs> I always am late for every single thing in my life um, <laughs> as I was late for this meeting. And, um, and I went to talk to him in his office, like really kind of shaking, thinking, what is he going to tell me? And he said, you know, we have this job opening and I think you should apply. I was, yeah, that was a huge surprise. And I applied and I got it. And it was like kind of, again, like this coincidence and, and opportunity that would not have happened. I think had I been a postdoc there for a year or two, I couldn't apply, I couldn't get this job. But because I had been there only two months, I could say I'm I'm not a postdoc here yet. I mean, like really, you can't say in any way that Princeton made me. So I am an outsider, bringing an outsider perspective here. So I had a chance with that job. Um, so yeah, that's that's the random way that things happened. Wow. Uh, well, I think we're all thankful that that uh, shook out like that. It turned out to be a pretty good hire. Um, well, thank you. Well, so you're, the, the funny thing is I got my offer letter said that it's contingent on me submitting my PhD because I had started my postdoc before submitting my PhD and only submitted it in July, uh, having in those six months gotten married, moved countries, gotten married and uh, gotten a faculty position. So those are pretty intense six months. Wow. I'm curious. Uh, so you mentioned Peter Diane as a mentor, and you have had a lot of great students come through your lab uh, and and go on to have you know successful scientific careers. I'm wondering if you have any best practices as a mentor that you sort of employ, maybe that you learn from Peter, or any you know sort of most common advice that you give your students. Oh, there's a lot there and we don't have, you know, days to be talking, but I've learned a lot from Peter. Um, one of the things that I think is most, I think about his mentoring style a lot is how he empowers his students and his postdocs, all his trainees. Um, I remember people, Peter would come to ask us, you know, do you know, of any work about this and that, or like, do you know of anybody who's done this and that experiment? And it seemed to me like anything that I know, he knows. Like there's really no paper that I knew that he did not know of. And I thought he's doing that partly to, I mean, I, I know he was asking genuinely, but also 
to make me feel knowledgeable. Um, so I, and, and, and in general, kind of giving credit to your students for their thoughts and ideas, even if you thought of it first. And I know that my very first paper with Peter that he gave me all the credit for, I know in hindsight from other people that he had that idea way before, way before I even joined Gatsby. Like he, like I did not, there was nothing new that I discovered there for him. He hadn't written it down, but he never said that to me. And I think that's, that's really important to, to realize that it takes time to think of, um, you know, it takes some immersion in a topic to come up with ideas. And if you, and, and you could always be telling your students, oh, I thought that, you know, a year ago, but why? You could just keep quiet. And yeah, I thought that you thought that too. I mean, who owns it? Like you own your own thoughts. You like you own the intellectual contribution. So I try to think of that and kind of like resist um, sometimes saying, yeah, you know, that idea came to me as well. Um, so that's, that's one thing. Um, the other thing for good mentoring, I think is um, uh, like the main, the main thing for me is, or for mentor, not good mentoring, I mean, for mentoring is, is um, communication and being really open about issues. Um, so that's not necessarily something that I learned from Peter. Um, I think as a student, I was, um, I was older than all the postdocs. I mean, the path in Israel, we go to the army first and stuff. I was in a different place. I did not come with my personal issues or even work issues so much to, to Peter. I don't ever remember coming and saying, maybe I just forgot, but coming and saying, you know, I'm having, you know, I'm stuck or I'm, I don't know if, you know, this is a good idea. Like, I, I don't remember these kinds of conversations. So this wasn't like from personal, uh, from, from, doing this in a personal, like in my mentoring relationship, but I'm, I'm very big on communication in any relationship in life. And I think it's really important for mentoring relationships. And some of what I learned is kind of from the opposite side from like the, so my master's advisor was very good, I think, at advising um, PhD students or people who can use a lot of academic freedom. He was basically very hands-off. Uh, it's not good for master's students. I, as a master's student, didn't, I, I, I was okay with hands-off, but I saw other master's students that, that were in the lab at the same time kind of really flailing. And I remember taking home from that, taking with me that like, you can't advise everybody in the same way. Different people need different things. Different stages need different things. And so I try to do that. I try to remember like, you know, what's a first year graduate student? What's a post-bac student? What's a postdoc? And not having like a cookie cutter approach because they each need something different for me. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that strikes, both of those strike me as really beautiful and really dead on, uh, especially that first one seems really non-trivial that you, there's, there's a dance that you do that really is important in bringing someone into the fold and having them feel like a member of the, the community. Um, all right, so I want to, I want to ask you about a, a lovely and perhaps disconcerting little paper I read recently called The Primacy of Behavioral Research for Understanding the Brain. 
Um, and so you you have released this, I think, fairly recently on uh, Sci Archive, and it's been downloaded something insane, like like three thousand five hundred times. Oh uh, wow! I didn't know. It's it's huge. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen anything that's garnered uh, those kind of numbers on on that site before. Um, and so clearly, you you touched on something that a lot of people are feeling deeply and have perhaps uh, never felt like someone has articulated quite uh, in, in the way that you seem to have achieved in, 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 in your uh, piece. So maybe in your own words, can you summarize what that piece was about and what you think the, the sort of highlights um, that you felt were important to touch on in that are? Um, sure. Um... I should start by saying that I released this paper recently, but it's been written a long time ago. It's actually already published or very similar versions published in a book where we probably submitted the chapter, I don't know, two years ago. And that was being like two years late on the submission deadline. Um, so this, these are ideas that have been, um, that have been, in on my mind for a long time and also in on my lab's mind. So um, over the years, I realized that I am doing um, less and less neuroscience and more and more behavioral work. I find the behavioral work much more revealing. Um, for me, the questions that I want to answer are normal. Like if I think about what's the best way to answer them, it's really behavior that answers those questions. And there are questions about the brain. They're not, they're, they're questions in neuroscience, but the answer uh, or, or ideas about kind of the insight comes to me from behavior, almost never from the brain itself. And I also teach a course or used to teach a course called Cognitive Neuroscience, Introduction to Cognitive Neuroscience. And they're going through each of the topics from perception to, you know, memory, learning, uh, social cognition, um, cognitive control, each topic. I would find I would find it hard to bring neuroscience studies that that would illuminate that topic. It was much easier for me to bring behavioral work, but I was like, this is a this is not a cognitive science course or cognitive psychology course. We have cognitive psychology. This is cognitive neuroscience, so I have to bring in the neuroscience. And it kept being like, okay, if you lesion this area, then that changes. But it's not like what how does the brain do anything? It's like, what can it not do if you get rid of an area in the brain? Um, so, so the main point of this paper, and, and on the other hand, the zeitgeist around me and around, I think, all of neuroscience is the exact opposite. If you're not looking into the brain, if you're not um, doing animal work, invasive animal work, or at least, you know, fMRI or something like that in humans, you're not doing neuroscience. And I've had like one of my most, I, I think most interesting, well, one of my most interesting results, which is an, uh, uh, a paper on gradual extinction, um, we couldn't get it published. We couldn't get it even reviewed in the Journal of Neuroscience because it's quote unquote only behavior. And it's, it's really, it, it teaches us so much about the brain. Um, and that was not the only time that I couldn't get something reviewed in the Journal of Neuroscience because it was just behavior. 
And in my grants, I will have, you know, the interesting behavioral studies and then an fMRI study. And I know that if I don't have the fMRI study, that grant will not be reviewed favorably. It will not be funded. And most recently, we've um, started a center. Uh, um, it's called the uh, CCNP, the, um, the Rutgers Princeton uh, Center for Computational Cognitive Neuropsychiatry, in which we do um, we run experiments on patient populations and looking at uh, under, trying to understand psychiatric uh, illness or mental health. Uh, questions. And I remember talking to a program officer about what kind of mechanism would fund this kind of research center. And specifically, we're focusing on behavior there because we want to develop methods that would be useful in the clinic, that that a clinician be, would be able to you know, use a task or use a, a, um, one of our models to quantify mental health processes or mental health symptoms uh, in patients as they come every week, as they come for the once a month checkup, et cetera. And so the whole point is for it to be behavioral, uh, cheap to, to administer and easy and, and, you know, on an iPad, on an iPhone. Um, and this program officer said, well, it's a problem. If your center doesn't have fMRI, that's going to be a problem. And I explained to them what exactly, you know, why this is part of our philosophy even, like we want it to be behavior. And, he, and this person said, let me get back to you and got back to me a few uh, weeks later saying, I talked to, to others in my unit and to other program officers. And it's okay if you don't have fMRI, as long as you have MEG or something like that. And I literally sat there and was like, we're not talking about the same thing. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, you know, this is just not, MEG is not going to solve the problem, right? Uh, another uh, method that, that would never be used regularly in the clinic. So, so the point of the paper is to say, we tend to think that if you're not looking at the brain, um, and if you're not looking into the brain, you're not answering neuroscience questions. And I think that's just false. I think there are many, many examples. I mean, we had a lab meeting where we tried to come up with uh, examples where um, neuroscience has taught us something that we really didn't know from behavior, not confirmed something, not found where in the brain that thing is, but really like we did, an, it's like, not we, someone did a neuroscience experiment and we learned something that we had no idea was how the brain is working. And we could barely find examples. We sat there for a long time. We could find lots of examples where behavioral experiments had taught us a lot about neural processes, but we couldn't find many um, in the other direction. So, so the point was to say, we, we tend to think that, that the basis is neuroscience and we can, you know, lump on some behavior on that. Like, of course, you know, to assess that our neuroscience manipulation worked or what it did, then we have like a, a behavioral task, but, but the focus is on the neuroscience method and the behavioral task can be simple. It could be, you know, reversal learning. It could be place preference, like all these very simple assays. But I think it's actually the opposite, really, that the basis is really telling behavioral studies. And I I go to talks, to seminars, and, and what makes me really excited, what makes my eyes shine and what I want to tell everybody after a seminar is when I hear about a really cool experimental design, a really cool behavioral design. It's like, 
oh my God, you really managed to isolate and pinpoint that one process. And, and it's so simple and elegant and like, you know, how did I not think of that? It's just the perfect way to ask that question. And I never think that about neuroscience methods. I always think that about behavioral methods. I think they are the basis of the pyramid. Of course, you want to add neuroscience on that to go and see, you know, where exactly in the brain and how exactly are the neurons communicating, et cetera. But if you don't have a really good behavioral paradigm, I just think the brain has everything in it. So it's so... Um, it has so much redundancy and also we don't even know, like going back to, we don't know the basics about the brain. We don't really know what the neural code is. Like how do neurons communicate? Like what's the important thing to measure? Should I just measure spikes? Should I measure local field potentials? Should I measure, you know, are the glia important there? Like we just, our measurements are so looking under the, um, looking under the spotlight of what we know to look at in our linear analyses, et cetera. Like it's, we're too far from being able to look at the brain and figure out what it does, but we can look at behavior and figure out what the brain does and then look at the brain and figure out how it does it. Um, and so I, I really think that pyramid is, is totally skewed and, and funding bodies and, and, and journals should, should really prioritize behavioral research because We've been like neuroscience has been building on the great behavioral research that that was done, you know, in the 50s and 60s and 70s. But people will tell you now that you can't actually have a behavioral lab anymore uh, in neuroscience. Like there's no way to get it funded. Uh, you publish in places that neuroscientists don't read. Um, and I think that will hold back the field that will hold back understanding how the brain works. So that's what I was trying to say in that paper. Um, very directly and forcefully because I'm kind of fed up. And I think what you're saying is resonating with a lot of people. One, one really, I think, provocative statement that you make in the paper is that we have a moral obligation to essentially make good on the observation that you are putting forth, right? Which is that, so let's say we're, we're interested in the brain. Like that's really is what we want to figure out. Uh, not only are behavioral experiments the most effective way to achieve those goals, but you uh, also have this huge cost associated with running all of the standard invasive um, uh, or you know neuroimaging techniques, right? And so from just about every perspective of the sort of sociology of, of, of science and, and, and what are you know, sort of obligation is as a community, we need to be doing, we need to be putting way more um, emphasis on doing these behavioral experiments. And I imagine- Yeah, I, I, I think there's a, there's an opportunity cost to anything that we do. And it's, it's our time and it's the money that's put in, which money is really time. It's hiring more and more people to do specific things. And I see, for instance, the brain, um, the brain project is so focused on methods um, human connectome, uh, uh, neuroscience methods, like let's develop more neuroscience methods so we can measure even more stuff about the brain. Um, let's, uh, the human connectome project also very focused on measuring lots of things about the brain, but not really thinking, what will we do with those measurements? So it was like, let's just throw lots of people into scanners, measure resting state, 
um, and then measure their performance on a bunch of tasks. Which tasks? Afterthought. That's that's where I, I find that that's but just a bunch of them, but just like a bunch of them. To, some of them will be useful. Uh, but that's that's like saying let's let's first collect a lot of data and then think of a research question. And I don't think research works that way. That's not how it works for me. That's not how I was taught, and that's not how I ever do an experiment. I think you have to have a really precise research question and then a really precise way to answer that question. Not any experiment will answer any question. Any experiment will give you just lots of data that you know nothing that you can't do anything with. And and I think this is my perspective as a computational neuroscientist in particular, that to test a model, to, to differentiate, is it this model or that model, you need a very specific manipulation. It's not like any, that's how I became a, an experimentalist because I was trained as a theoretician in Peter Dan's lab. I did only theory. Um, my master's was theory, was theory you know, simulations. Uh, but then I realized that I can't, I can't just like pull out previous experiments that would test my new theory. I need to do a new experiment to test my theory. So experiments are super important, but you can't do the experiment before you know what question you're asking, before you know what theory you're asking. And I, I, I remember sitting at a GRC, a Gordon Research Conference, uh, I think it was a GRC on Cognition, sitting at a dinner and someone said that there's a grant mechanism that there literally is a grant mechanism in NIH, which is collect lots of data. You just say, I will collect a lot of data. And then the second phase, like the continuation of the grant is now I will think of what analyses I want to do and what questions I want to ask. And I, I, I think I got up and left. I just couldn't like handle this. It was like, this is just too much that literally they dump money into collecting data that we have no idea what we'll do with. And I think, we have a ton of data, a ton, a ton, a ton of data. That is not the bottleneck. The bottleneck is understanding those data. And that's why we need theory. That's why we need models. That's why we need to be really careful about answering research questions, not just collecting more and more and more data. And it's, it's, it's a huge waste of resources. And it's, I, I just ask myself, where is the bottleneck? So is the bottleneck, is the reason I don't understand what, how the basal ganglia learn is that because I don't know the connection of each neuron to each neuron, right? Because then you can have, you know, the, is, is it the problem that we haven't mapped the connectome? Because I, for me, for my research, that's not the problem. That's not what I'm missing. Maybe other people are missing that exact thing, but I have yet to see who, who like, give me the connectome of the basal ganglia and I will tell you what it does. We've, we've tried that for many years to go from structure to function. It doesn't really work. And that's why I give in my paper, the example of C. elegans. We know everything about the C. elegans brain, about the connections and everything. And we still don't know how it works. So, so we want to have that for, you know, 80, um, what is it like 8.6 billion neurons, a trillion, I can't remember I how think many zeros. gazillion is the... Yeah. Is the, is the right one? Yeah. And, and how will that help us? I mean, like, you know, we know so much about the connectivity and the retina. We know exactly the cell types and stuff. And still, we don't really know how the retina works. There are lots of questions. I mean, we know a lot, but there are lots of questions left to. So I, I just feel like don't dump more data on us. We need theory. We need theory. We need, you know, smart experiments and not just random data. Yeah, and 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 I'll I'll go back. So the when I studied 
at the ICNC, at the Interdisciplinary Center for Neural Computation, Idan Segev was the head of our program, the head of the um, uh, doctoral program. And I remember he said at some point, when we understand the brain, the book that describes it will be no longer than 100 pages long. And I think that is true. Like we need to understand principles. We don't need data dumps. Um, and it, and I think that is a moral obligation in the sense that who's funding this? It's it's the taxpayer who's con continuing to suffer from mental illness and other illnesses of the brain. Are are we doing the best we can to to understand the brain and to bring solutions to these problems, or are we you know playing around? I don't know. <laughs> well, uh, let's. Here's the hoping we can do both. Uh, of course. Uh, we, of course, but there's a balance. Um, there's a balance yeah, to course. be had. And I think it's really gone to like, you know, 90%, 95%. I mean, I've talked to so many people who used to have behavioral labs, animal behavioral labs, and they say, we can't do that anymore. We just can't do that research anymore because we can't fund it. And that's really, I think, going way too much to one direction. Yeah, of course. All right, Yael, I want to be respectful of your time, and we're coming up at the end here. So uh, this is such a huge pleasure to hear more of your your story and to get some further thoughts on, you know, some of these these big topics that you've been thinking about. And uh, I, I'm really looking forward to sharing this. Well, thank you so much for having me, and thank you so much for for having your podcast. And and um, we mentioned this in email. I want to mention this on air. Having uh, you know, talking to a, a diverse and representative. Uh, sample of of researchers, I think that is really really critical to to um, to everything that we do. Not only a moral obligation, but also benefits science. So thank you. It's, inter it's interesting how those uh, when you do the moral obligations right, you get you get uh, extra benefits. Uh, it, it seems to work like that in a lot of ways. So uh, yeah. yeah, thank you. That's very that means a lot to me. So thank you. Well, thank you so much. Yep. Have a good rest of your day. Bye. Bye, you too. That was my conversation with Yael Niv. Uh, I really enjoyed talking to her. I hope you enjoyed listening to what she had to say. Um, she's got a really interesting story, and uh, it's pretty impressive how uh, much she's been driven by her, her own focus and her own uh, interests, and I find that very inspiring. If you want to connect with Yael, you can do so on Twitter. Her handle is at Yael underscore Niv, Y-A-E-L underscore N-I-V. And if you want to connect with me, you can follow me on Twitter at Cody Commerce or uh, through my email newsletter, uh, which you can find at CodyCommerce.com slash newsletter. So thank you very much for listening this week, and I will be back again next week with another episode of Cognitive Revolution. Cognitive Revolution.